Jogcast, another one bites the zodiacal dust. With John Field, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jogcast, January 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Christina Smith and joining me in the studio today is Mark and Libby. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the new year and we are now seven years old, which is quite exciting. (laughs) We have a massive cake in the studio. Not really. No. (laughs) In our imaginations we do. In the show this time we talk to Professor Joanna Haig about the effect of the sun on climate change and we find out what you can see in the January night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, the youngest young stellar objects, stellar sibling rivalries, and planets go missing. For over 50 years, we have understood that the vast stellar seas of gas and dust, known as molecular clouds, are the birth chambers of stars. The process of producing a star requires that the molecular cloud is large enough to foster cold cores of gas and dust that reach temperatures of just tens of Kelvin. Then, with the help of a pressure front, such as could be produced by a supernova explosion, the material within the cold core can begin to collapse into a small, dense envelope of dust, containing the first moments of a new star, a protostar, which is encircled by a rotating disk which feeds material from the envelope onto the star's surface. At this point, the star is known as a young stellar object, and will remain in this state for another 100 million years, before it throws off its blanket of surrounding dust by igniting its fusion core and ascending out to share its place among its older brethren. Young stellar objects are broken into four classifications. 0, 1, 2 and 3, where 0 is the youngest and 3 is the oldest. When observing young stellar objects, the majority are noted as being either class 2 or class 3, as this is both where the young stellar objects are brightest and spend the majority of their lifetimes some point between class 2 and class 3, that nuclear fusion occurs. Before nuclear fusion, the protostar is just a highly dense ball of ionised gas heated by gravitational collapse, which glows brightly in the infrared part of the spectrum. The earliest stage, class 0, is the poorest understood period of the young stellar object's life, but it is while in this stage that important physics describing the transition from the free gas in the molecular cloud into a fully defined young stellar object occurs. Until recently, however, no telescope has been able to study a class zero young stellar object for reasons exactly opposite of that mentioned previously. The protostar is both extremely dim, since it is trapped within a thick veil of dust, and spends less than 10,000 years in this state. However, thanks to a new generation of infrared telescopes, such as SMA and KARMA, a team has managed to measure the accretion disk around a class zero young stellar object called L1527. By using Kepler's laws with measurements of the protostar's rotating disk, the researchers have determined that L1527 is only a fifth of the mass of a cloud of dust that surrounds it. This ratio is directly related to the age of the young stellar object, as low numbers mean that there has not been much time for the dust and gas to fall onto the protostar. Critically, L1527 agrees with the expectations made of class 0 young stellar objects, and therefore, as far as can be seen, is well on its way to hosting its own solar system in the future. 
binary star systems account for about half of all the star systems in the Milky Way. For the majority of binary stars, they form like their single star cousins, enclosed within an envelope of gas and dust, but with the small difference that binary stars share their primordial cloud with others. However, a certain subset of binary stars, known as wide binary stars, offer up a problem to this simple idea because the stellar pair is separated by such a vast distance of the order of hundreds of times the diameter of the solar system, such that there is simply no way they could have formed together in a single cloud. The current model for how wide binaries form assumes that it occurs at the time after the host star cluster has dispersed at which point the environment becomes calm enough that the two distant stars are able to form a tenuous gravitational bond. A new theory proposed by Ruperth and McCullough suggests a completely different process which they have determined using computer simulations of star clusters. Their model requires a slight modification to the expectations of a wide binary star system in that it is in fact three stars disguised as two. Initially, the assumption is that the three stars form in close proximity within a star cluster. All three tightly bound to each other, providing them with the necessary security to escape the turbulent conditions they were born into. Then, slowly, over the course of millions of years, two of the sibling stars begin to form a closer bond and spiral into an ever tighter orbit around each other, while simultaneously pushing the third star away. What the model hinges upon, though, is that all the wide binary star systems are in fact three-body star systems, which, at the moment, is not supported by observation. However, telescopes currently would only be able to distinguish two closely orbiting stars if they are very near to us, and this is further complicated because the model predicts that the two close stars may even merge into one. Although this means that the model certainly needs more time to be tested, it is worth noting that the nearest neighbours to the Sun, Alpha Centauri A, B, and the closest, Proxima Centauri, are all part of a single-body, wide binary star system, perhaps supporting the model. Finally, researchers using Haute-Provence Observatory have made follow-up observations of some of the brightest confirmed Jupiter-like planets detected by the Kepler satellite. The team measured the wobble of the stars caused by the orbit of a nearby planet, and therefore could make an independent measurement of the confirmed planets using a different technique to Kepler's light curve method. Unfortunately, rather than confirm Kepler's findings, the follow-up measurements actually found 35% of the planets were simply false positives caused by other effects. Although Kepler was expected to have some false positive detections, the previous estimate before Kepler's launch was a mere 5%. What makes this important is not so much that now the number of confirmed planets will go down, but that it indicates that the understanding of what causes the false positives is poor. The method Kepler uses to detect planets is to observe a star over a period of time, and if a planet transits across the disk of the star, Kepler will measure a decrease in the star's brightness. What caused the false positives is that there are situations which can cause a star's brightness to decrease even if a planet is not involved. The three main culprits are a small companion failed star known as a brown dwarf is transiting instead of a planet. Alternatively, a much larger star is orbited by a small sun-like star and brown dwarf binary system, which can cause planet-like dips in the light curve. A final possibility could be that Kepler is observing a very tight binary star system, where the plane of the orbit is tilted so that the two stars slightly overlap each other as one passes in front of the other. 
Fortunately, it is possible to correct for these problems, and already new models are estimating false positive percentages closer to the observed 35%. However, it is perhaps slightly concerning that the problem only became apparent after ground-based follow-up observations, because this sort of work is both expensive and limited to only a small number of stars observed by the Kepler satellite. Thanks for that, Stuart. Next up, Mark talks to Professor Joanna Haig about the effect of the sun on climate change. I'm interviewing Professor Joanna Haig of Imperial College London, who's just been giving a colloquium here in Manchester about the role of the sun in climate change. Um, this is a really interesting topic. It's a really good sort of crossover of astronomy and atmospheric physics. So the first thing I thought I'd go with is the astronomy side, which is um, by asking you how the sun actually varies and why it's not just the same all the time. So now you're starting on a very difficult question because I'm not a solar physicist, but of course the sun is a huge, great nuclear power station which is burning up energy in its core and it has intrinsic variability on very, very long timescales of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. But that's not really what we're interested in uh, in the climate uh, framework. What we're interested in is changes in the radiation that's coming out of the sun. And um, that changes on timescales of the 11-year solar cycle and also on timescales of sort of hundreds of years and quite why it does I think is not entirely understood but it's connected with the magnetic variability on the sun's surface and magnetic convection cells and factors like that. Right and probably the 11 year cycle is, is something that a lot of people have heard about but what sort of uh, ways do we have to measure that cycle? So um, observations that sunspots vary in number have, have gone back in time for hundreds of years. I mean, the ancient Chinese knew that the number of sunspots was varying and kept some sorts of records. And so that is the, the prime indication that we have, that there is variations in the surface so of the sun. these dark spots? On the these are little surface. black spots that come and go in number. They start off at higher latitudes on the sun and they converge on, on the equatorial region and they disappear and then the next cycle starts. And the cycle isn't precisely 11 years. It varies between, say, 9 and 13 years. And also the amplitudes of the cycles, the numbers of spots associated with each um, solar cycle is also very variable. So when we talk about the 11-year cycle, we have to be quite clear that there isn't one 11-year cycle. It's, it's a range of variability. And right now, where are we up to in that? Well, we're very interesting because um, uh, the last solar maximum was um, about the year 2000. And so you'd think that the next solar maximum would be about 2011. But the solar minimum we went into in 2008 was very, very long-lasting. And it was going on and on and on, and no sunspots, and we kept wondering what was going to happen. Mm. And so we've only been rising up towards the next solar maximum for the last two or three years. But the indication is that we're actually nearing the next solar maximum, but at a very low level. So it's not a completely fixed cycle, and does that mean that that 11-year cycle is then resting within larger variations as well? Yes, so the 11-year cycle is the most obvious um, indication we've got. As I say, it's, uh, sunspots are visible to the naked eye, at least with a, with a telescope, if you use it carefully. So that's been known about by a very long time. Other indicators of solar activity are sort of proxy measures, for example, um, cosmogenic isotopes that you see in ice cores and tree rings and other Earth surface features um, come about as a response to changes in cosmic ray intensity. And cosmic rays are modulated by the strength of the solar magnetic field. So we have an indirect um, indicator of solar activity when the cosmogenic isotopes are higher in concentration. That means that there was... Um, more cosmic rays, which means that the sun was less active. 
All right. So these cosmic rays are they're tiny energetic particles coming. Yes, they're coming from way various outside, regions. Yes, way outside space. the solar system. So there's a constant shower of cosmic rays on the Earth all the time. So what we're saying then is that the activity of the sun either helps to let these cosmic rays get through the atmosphere or it makes it harder for them to get through, is that right? What happens is this, the, um, the solar magnetic field, which sort of encompasses the whole of the solar system and the magnetosphere and all the rest of it, um, varies in strength during the solar cycle or, when, or in response to solar activity, um, such that the cosmic rays are steered away when the magnetic field is stronger. And then the cosmic rays that get through are actually they're sort of making imprints in in tree rings. Then that's yes, quite exactly. Incredible. So they they um, form neutrons, they, they, scattering on particles in the atmosphere. They form neutrons that then go down into the into the surface of the Earth and can be detected in these changes in the isotopes. Right. So one of the things then that you're talking about is uh, how far back that history kind of goes. And it was quite interesting that you were talking about the earlier efforts of people to actually measure what effect this solar cycle might be having on the Earth. So where did that all begin? So people have been thinking about how the sun um, affects climate for many years. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the ancient Chinese looking at the sunspot numbers and seeing if they could detect any corresponding changes in climate. And then Sir William Herschel, about 200 years ago, was looking at uh, sunspots and um, how they correlated with prices of wheat on the London Stock Exchange, right. which was an interesting topic, but, uh, you know, he had a good line on it. <laughs> Then we had um, Admiral Lord Fitzroy, who was captain of the um, the Beagle that took Charles Darwin on his on his journeys of exploration. He had views about solar variability and climate, and he had quite a nice theory that involved when the sun was more active, it was heating the, the surface of the ocean in the tropical regions and causing more rainfall and more clouds. More recently, we've, of course, been trying to actually look at the science and the physics involved in the processes uh, rather than just looking at correlations between meteorological parameters and, and solar parameters. Yeah, it seemed almost like it was disreputable um, some time ago. Indeed, yes. So in, in, in the um, Victorian times, there was a, a whole activity which was called astrometeorology, and the astrometeorologists were trying to predict the weather on the basis of the state of the planets and the, and the sun and things. And um, they had some successes and some notable failures, but of course they always got their successes marked up and they managed to do quite well out of their predictions, I think, in a financial sense. <laughs> so coming up to the present day then, I suppose the big question is, does the sun affect the climate? And if it does, in what ways can we now detect it? So what we do is we first of all see, using some of these correlated techniques, whether or not there are any signals of the sun in the climate. And looking over the global average surface temperature, the signal is very small. So the sun might have contributed to a small warming over the first half of the 20th century, but pretty little since then, and it can't be used to explain global warming over the last 150 years or so. So in that sense, the sun is not terribly relevant if you're just thinking about global warming from, from a, a, a surface average perspective. But what we have found is that the um, response is not uniform over the globe. And so um, actually the statistics is showing us that the largest signals in response to the sun on the 11-year cycle and possibly longer are in, in mid-latitude, so I mean sort of 40 to 50 degrees north in, in both the northern and southern hemispheres. And um, so this is not what you would expect if you were just saying, well, 
more or less radiation coming in from the sun, where would it heat the Earth most? You'd assume that the biggest response would be in the tropics. So this is an interesting question to try and answer. And what we see is that the heating of the atmosphere, if you go up in the atmosphere in the stratosphere, the heating of the atmosphere is greatest in low latitudes near the tropics. But as you come down towards the surface, it's this mid-latitude signal that I've already mentioned. So um, what we're trying to do now is understand how this is taking place. And clearly it's not a direct radiative response to the sun. There's some sort of nice uh, meteorology, fluid dynamics and things going on that's, that's coupling the, uh, the middle and lower atmospheres. What was quite interesting when you talked about the irradiance or the amount of sunlight that's getting through during the solar cycle was that although there's a little bit more visible light coming, I think, when the solar activity is higher, it was different for ultraviolet light and x-rays, wasn't it? That's right. Thank you for listening so carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. So we've got this a small change. If you take the total irradiance from the sun and you look over the 11-year cycle, there's about one-tenth of one percent more radiation when the sun is more active, so that's really quite a small amount. But if you look at the actual spectrum of the change, while the one-tenth of a percent represents what's going on in the visible region, which is where most of the solar energy is, you find that in the UV wavelengths the variations are much larger, and by the time you get to X-rays the amplitude is varying by 100% over the 11-year solar cycle. So if we focus in on the, on the sort of near UV, and this is important because it's heating the stratosphere of the Earth, the variations there are of a few percent, so sort of 1 to 10% over the solar cycle. And so we can see that there there's a causal mechanism whereby variations in the sun could affect the atmosphere. A few percent is not huge, but it's a lot larger than a tenth of a percent. Yes. So we're focusing our efforts on understanding how the solar ultraviolet heats the stratosphere and how that can then couple down into the lower atmosphere. And you're talking about how it, it, at least it may affect the ozone layer and this may cause the effects further down. Yes, exactly. So um, the UV that's absorbed in the stratosphere, a lot of that energy is turned into producing ozone. And so there's a, quite a complicated non-linear sort of coupling between the radiation and the temperature. And we found that we need to take that into effect when we're looking at the effect on the stratosphere and the knock-on effect lower down. Okay. And you were saying that the the changes you see when most clearly they're sort of localised at particular parts of the Earth and also particular heights in the atmosphere. Then, Yes, yeah, so if we want to understand how we get this, this warming predominantly in, in mid-latitudes, um, we have to sort of start to understand the circulations of, of the atmosphere. And um, there's a, a circulation which is part of the natural variability or the natural climate system, which is called the Hadley circulations, and that is air that ascends in the tropics. So you've got the big convective storms and things that you know in, in near the equator. And there's overturning circulations of air which is descending at about um, 30 degrees north and south. And you'll know that this is the regions where there's lots of deserts because the descending air is drying and hot and dry. So um, we've got this natural overturning air in these, in these Hadley cells. And what we found is that in the models that we've run, when you heat the stratosphere due to um, more UV radiation from the sun, it affects the um, horizontal extent of these overturning circulations and they expand when the sun's more active, which pushes all the weather patterns further polewards and it particularly pushes the um, jet streams and the storm tracks. So when the sun's more active, the jet streams and the storm tracks in the North Atlantic, for example, are slightly further north. 
So while the global response to the sun is rather small, if you're sitting in a particular region, perhaps in Scotland or somewhere where the uh, storm tracks are, are coming and going, you might actually, in your back garden thermometer, if you've got long enough records, that you'll see a sort of 11-year cycle in, in temperature right. or precipitation anyway. Well, one of the things you did just allude to a moment ago that wasn't the main topic of the talk was about actual um, what we'd call man-made climate change. Um, what you do must be a bit perilous in terms of people latching onto it and saying, oh, the sun is responsible for all the climate change that we can see. But there were some quite conclusive graphs, weren't there, in the, in the talk, not just based on models but observations that showed that the sun was only a small factor in the overall trend. Yes, I think, I think you can only use the sun to explain perhaps 10% of, of the global warming over the last um, 150 years and then it's sort of turned over in the last 10 years or so so the solar activity is actually getting less over the last 10 years so it's very difficult to see how that could be involved in in global warming I mean people have tried to use um, various sort of um, amplification factors to explain past change and saying that the sun's effect would be much larger than uh, you could get out of just looking at irradiance and uh, plausible ideas, none of which have actually panned out when you've tried to do the physics properly. But even if they were working, then they would have to have turned around over the last 10 years and gone the other way, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, it was interesting in the graphs that you had some of the climate models perhaps from a few years ago, and now you have the data that they predicted over the last few years, and there's this rise in temperature, which it's not just being shown by the model but it's actually coming true now in accordance with that. Or it's yes, sort of I mean like there that. are of course large error bars and the problem with climate prediction is that you've got to you've got to try and predict the natural variability of the atmosphere so you, I mean you can't really predict the sun and you certainly can't predict volcanoes. On top of that you've got to predict the CO2 concentration and the methane concentration and of course that involves um, making certain assumptions about human activity and how much coal and oil is going to be burnt etc etc so the inputs into the models are uncertain before you even run the uncertain models with the uncertain parameters so you can see that the predictions are going to have very very wide error bars but having said all that um, I think it's an indisputable situation that uh, if the carbon dioxide concentration keeps on going up the temperature will keep on going up and not just immediately but there's a sort of there's a, there's a, a stored amount of energy in, in the earth system such that even we stopped increasing the CO2 today, the temperature would carry on going up for at least another 200 years, even with today's CO2 situation. So it's not a, a situation where we can sort of sit and be comfortable with, I mm. don't think. Well, maybe as the last thing I thought I'd ask you something that I was uh, thinking about during the talk and quite interested me, which was um, when you get all the measurements of the temperature in different parts of the Earth and different parts of the stratosphere and also the wind speed, how do people get all those measurements, especially the ones high up in the atmosphere? So, of course, we're very lucky nowadays that there's a lot of meteorological satellites and um, they are the main source of this, this sort of global coverage. And they have various radiometers, so they're looking at infrared radiation that's coming up at various wavelengths. And by clever um, inversion techniques, they can convert the radiation coming up at different wavelengths into the temperatures at different levels in the atmosphere. Right then we know that there's a certain relationship between temperature gradients and wind strength, so you can derive what's called the thermal wind from those temperature measurements. Okay. There's other you know, supporting measurements, so there's um, meteorological balloons that get set off every 6 or 12 hours from various meteorological stations that record temperature and humidity as a function of the pressure in the atmosphere. Are they tethered? No, they no, no, they're not tethered, no, they're released. And they have, 
No, they, they never come back. But actually, um, when they burst, they have a uh, they they drop their equipment back to the earth, and they have a little tag on them that says, "Please return to the Met Office." Oh right. Okay. But I think um, they get very few of them back. Right. <laughs> so they <laughs> like a balloon race. Um, <laughs> they transmit their data, do they? And then yes, yes. They have little radios on that transmitting temperature, humidity, and pressure until they get up to quite high up in the atmosphere. There's also research balloons, but they're much fewer in number, and they can go up to perhaps 30 kilometres, but they would be special occasion measurements. We've also got MET equipment on aircraft, and so all of this data is um, accumulated by the, the big meteorological centres and, and stored and are used to help you know, guide the models. And going on slightly at a tangent <laughs> on that point, it's quite interesting, some of you will remember, or perhaps not, younger ones of you, uh, the great storm of 1987, where there was a terrible strong wind overnight and blew down lots of trees and damaged lots of houses in the southeast of England, which was signally not forecast by the UK Met Office, but it was forecast by the French Met Office, which is a source of great embarrassment. Uh, oh, right. um, and the reason was that they hadn't, hadn't used the data from the aircraft, which were showing the position of the very strong uh, winds that were coming across from the Atlantic. So all sources of data are, are useful. Right. And uh, Okay, well maybe it's a very, very last thing then. Um, I was just wondering, if you're a climate scientist, what makes you look to the sun and be interested in the particular effect of that on the Earth's atmosphere? Well, I'm, I'm a climate scientist, but I am by training a physicist. And um, it's a lovely problem because you've got the physics of the solar radiation, you've got the physics of it how it's absorbed in, in the Earth. You've got all the fluid dynamics going on in the atmosphere. You've got all the thermodynamics of the water, and, and it's a lovely sort of physicist mismatch of all sorts of problems that you can try and look at different angles. So I find it quite intriguing. It is, yeah. It's, 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 it's complex, but very, very, very interesting. Well, uh, thank you very much for talking to us and for the colloquium today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. And now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else that we'd like to talk about. It's the odds and ends. Well, relating back to the witty comment is my odd and end, and this is about zodiacal light and dust emission. So, Brian May, of Rock God fame and Queen and General Awesomeness, uh, has published his first paper after his thesis. And this has been analysing the the glow that you see in sunset and sunrise in either uh, spring or autumn. And this light is emitted by dust um, scattered along the zodiac, which is where it gets its name, zodiacal light. And what they've been doing is been modelling this dust using infrared emission. So dust actually absorbs light from the optical and radiates in the infrared. Uh, and this has been detected by the IRAS and COBE missions. So these satellites are, are quite old and have had a wonderful lifetime and done lots of amazing science. But we can also use this data that they collected to analyse the zodiacal dust emission. And what they found was um, that the majority of this dust actually comes from cometary particles and then also asteroids, and then a very small fraction of it, about 7.5%, comes from interstellar dust. So dust that has been formed by the previous generation of stars that's been left around in the solar system and has, has come in just as the solar system was forming. Whereas the cometary dust in the asteroid dust has been in our solar system for quite a long time and has been processed, uh, especially by comets as it goes around the sun. Uh, so they have very different chemistry, so you can tell a lot of difference. And it's just a very nice result, and like what makes this light that we see in uh, spring and autumn and also it's by brian may so it's very cool <laughs> <laughs> so this light is in the plane of the solar system right that's why it's along the zodiac for anyone that doesn't know yes 
Um, so and it's it's very very faint. So it's easily uh, swamped up by light pollution and by the moon moonlight. So it's at certain times, but a lot of astronomical images need to be corrected for this this light. Um, Has anyone ever seen the zodiacal light? I have. I was out in the desert in Utah, miles and miles, like hundreds of miles from anything else, and I am going to admit that I thought it was just light pollution um, until it was pointed out to me that we were several hundred miles from the nearest town. Well, dust is, is pollution, right? So you could call it light pollution. Dust is not pollution. Take that back. <laughs> dust oh, is sorry. amazing. That was uh, a slip of the tongue. <laughs> so why do you love dust so much? Tell everybody. Oh, because it's what I do. It's, I, I analyse the dust from dying stars. It's pretty interesting that 7% of this is interstellar. So with that stuff that's come into the solar system... Yeah, but- yeah, that stuff that's coming to the solar system. But as a star forms, it collects uh, a small dust cloud, and it actually needs to process the light for it to spin down and actually create its core. Um, but that will get a lot of that dust will get locked in comets and asteroids, which gets processed. But then there's extra dust that still comes into the solar system as well from the interstellar medium, and that's the dust that's also there. Um, but it's very nice to actually just be able to tell what composition it is from models and what causes that lovely faint glow which I've never seen, but have seen pretty pictures of. It's too cloudy and horrible in the UK to see see it. There's oh. too much light pollution, you wouldn't see it amongst all the towns and stuff. I know, I've tried. It's like when I go to a rural spot and never see anything. Oh well, moving onwards. My Odd and End is about a star called Tau Ceti, which is about 12 light years away from our sun. Um, so it's one of our pretty close neighbours. And it has been modelled by some scientists looking at the radial velocities so of spectra, so the way that spectra is shifted due to movements of the star. And it's been shown to have a planetary system around it of five planets, uh, ranging between two and seven Earth masses, which is pretty cool, one of which is in the Goldilocks region, the habitable zone. Well, it's thought to be in the habitable zone. So the reason why we're super excited about this is that there's, it's nearby. Yeah, it's nearby. It's in a habitable zone. Yep, our nearest star to us with planets is Alpha Centauri B, and that's about four light years away. But yeah, this one's another close neighbour with planets. It's kind of cool. So they're on, well, if they're on near circular orbits, um, they've got periods um, of orbit of between 14 days and 640 days, which is a really big range. <laughs> and just imagine being on a planet going around a sun at 14 days. However, when Libby said, we're super excited. <laughs> She wasn't really talking about herself. I was meaning in general. We know you've got. We know you've got terms. Earth fatigue. I know. These are quite exciting planets, though, aren't they? Sort of places where you might be able to go one day. No, I'm not excited by them. You could at least send a message there if there were people. Yeah. Yes, we could. I, Twelve light years. That's doable. But I imagine the majority of stars have planets rather than not our planet so every time someone gets excited by about a planet being discovered it's just because these are somewhat close by to me it's just how many habitable zone planets it shows there must be quite near to us there must be loads of them it seems like all the time we're up in the estimates of how many planets are out there yeah well the smaller and smaller a planet you get the harder and harder it is to detect it so as we're getting better and better at detecting them we're finding all of the little ones that we couldn't find before which I think is really cool, even if Libby doesn't. The ghost going to end up with very silly names. In fact, what names do these ones have? Do these have names? Um, the one that is in the habitable zone is called HD10700E. 
Wow. Exactly. Very catchy. When they start naming them after something a bit more exciting, then I'll then I may get more excited. Planet Libby. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. I will outwitting everything I say about planets. <laughs> they name after jogcasters. People build the jogcast. <laughs> At least Earth like habitable planets. <laughs> okay, well let's see if this is any more interesting. I've got a story about two spaceships flying into the moon. How about that? That definitely wins. They were unmanned, of course, and they are the two spaceships that make up NASA's GRAIL mission, which stands for Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory. They called the two spacecraft Ebb and Flow, and they spent the last 90 days mapping the gravitational pull of the Moon all around its surface, or around a lot of its surface anyway. So although you might think, oh, well, it's just constant gravity from a spherical object, various things like craters, mountains, patches of different density actually change the gravitational pull on different parts of an object. So they've been able to find a little bit about the interior of the Moon. Of course, they're still analysing the data. And they'll be able to say something about its history. Ebb and Flow have been flying around in different orbits, and all the while keeping track of the distance apart they are from each other to something like 10 micrometres, which is a really small amount. And that's how they've managed to map the different sorts of gravity. And then once they got to the end of the mission, there was two options. They could either have just let them keep going around until eventually they fell to the moon in an uncontrolled manner. But they chose instead to deliberately make them fly into a two-kilometre-high mountain in the lunar north. What more can you get rid of? Crashing spaceship into moons. <laughs> well, apparently they were worried about hitting areas of historical importance like Apollo landing sites, which seems fairly unlikely, but I suppose you never know. I think maybe they just thought it was fun. Because apparently there hasn't really been much science from this. It's possible that another spaceship called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter might be able to pick up some of the materials given off the surface by the impact. But given that this is equivalent to flying two washing machines into a mountain, there's probably not going to be a huge amount of impact. Oh, so that's the reason why there's no science. They're just so small and don't have enough mass to yeah. pick up enough dust. They might make around. craters, apparently. Was there any reason why this mountain was chosen specifically? I don't know. It's a 2,000 metre high mountain, so I guess it was pretty prominent, as lunar mountains go. They have named it after Sally Ride, who was the first female American astronaut, and she died earlier this year. So I don't know if it was chosen as a particularly special place, but they've given it a special name to, to mark the occasion. I wonder how many stuff has been crashed into the moon. Well, there was that one, wasn't there, which I can't remember the name of, where it was, it was filming all the way down yeah. into the surface of the moon. That's the only one I can really think of. Well, there must be quite a lot of debris on the surface from various fishes that maybe just spiralled in. Hmm. Maybe in the future you could go picking up bits of old spacecraft. And around our own orbit as well. There's a lot of space junk there. Mm. Yeah. They have to map them at NASA. They have to keep an eye on it for the ISS. Did you learn that while you were sat in the director's chair, Christina? I did. <laughs> <laughs> nerding out. In a massive what, way. <laughs> yes, what is the phrase nerding out meant to be? <laughs> We were discussing it on one of the previous ones when you sent that postcard. Oh, did I write it in the postcard? <laughs> my theory was that nerding out was where you were so overwhelmed by nerdy things that you actually sort of fainted and had to be kind of <laughs> revived. But Libby just said it's where you run around and you can't decide where to go next because it's all so amazing. Yeah, it was pretty much big smile, being really geeky, looking at every tiny little thing and jumping around a lot. That was, that was me nerding out. That sounds fantastic. I think we should get that in a dictionary. <laughs> now have a definition. Christina's picture will be next to it. And now from ebb and flow, the gravity mapping satellites, to the ebb and flow of the voice of Ian Morrison, doing the Northern Hemisphere night sky for January.
The Night Sky, January 2013. We have a wonderful part of the heavens visible to us in the evening in January. Perhaps the most recognised constellation of all is Orion the Hunter. His upper left star is Betelgeuse, the lower right, Rigel, two of the brightest stars in the northern sky. The three stars that make up his belt act as a wonderful pointer, really, or pointers towards some of the other objects. If you come up towards the right from those three stars, we come into the constellation of Taurus the Bull, and we first come to the Hyades cluster. The bright star there is called Aldebaran. It's not part of the cluster. It's about halfway between ourselves and the cluster itself. If you carry on, you come to that beautiful little star cluster called the Pleiades. Conversely, if you go down to the lower left of the three stars of Orion's belt, you come to the brightest star in the northern sky, which is Sirius. If you've got binoculars, it's well worth looking at Sirius and then dropping down a few degrees. You should pick up a rather nice little open cluster called M41. It's one of my favourites. Most of the stars are blue. There's a lovely red giant star, a lovely colour contrast in the centre. To the left of Orion is a constellation that almost no one's ever heard of. It's called Monoceros, and that's because there's almost nothing there. I can only think of two things. There is, in fact, a very nice nebula called the Rosette Nebula, and also, in fact, it's the home of the nearest black hole that we know of to the Earth. And in fact, with my colleagues here at Jodrell Bank, we discovered its location precisely back in 1976. Up to the left of Monoceros, it almost looks like a single star, but there's a second star just up to its right. That's called Procyon, and that's the constellation called Canis Minor, as opposed, of course, to Canis Major, of which Sirius is the brightest star. Moving upwards from Procyon, we come to two bright stars, Pollux first, and then Castor. They're the heads of the heavenly twins, Gemini. Their legs and bodies move down towards the upper left part of Orion. Again, close to the legs of the upper of the two little men is a nice cluster called M35. Now that part of the sky is along the plane of the Milky Way, and carrying on in the same direction we come to a bright star called Capella, yellowish star, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Auriga. And in our Riga, there's some very nice open clusters as well, M36, M37, and M38, all worth looking at with binoculars or a small telescope. Just one other constellation to mention. Moving down to the left from Castor through Pollux, we come to a very faint constellation called Cancer. In it is a very lovely, quite large in angular size open cluster is called the Beehive Cluster, or Prysope. And that, again, is well worth looking at in binoculars on a dark night, particularly when there's no moon, when, of course, we see fainter objects far better. So what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter, of course, is the highlight, really, of the whole of this month, and more of a little bit about it later on. It's well up in the eastern sky after sunset. It crosses the meridian, and that's when it's about due south and highest in the sky, at 9 o'clock on January the 1st, and as early as 7.30 by the end of January. It's now at the highest part of the ecliptic, and that includes the constellations of Taurus the Bull and Gemini. 
As a result, its elevation when due south is getting on for 60 degrees, the best it could ever be. So this year and the next apparition in about a year and a bit are the best times to see it for quite some time. It shines at magnitude minus 2.7 and it's about 5 degrees to the upper right of the star Aldebaran. It's currently still in retrograde motion, moving quite slowly westwards in the sky. It does so until the very end of the month when it starts moving towards the east again, moving back over the top of the Hyades cluster. So it's actually staying pretty much in the same place the whole of the month. Its angular diameter is actually dropping a little bit now because it's past its opposition and nearest point to the Earth from 47 down to about 43 arc seconds. There is still lots to see with a small telescope. There are bands and zones, dark bands, bright zones on the disk, and you may spot the great red spot. And you also will see up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around the giant planet. Well, Saturn, that's a morning object, so it's visible well above the eastern horizon before dawn. The magnitude remains constant, about plus 0.6 magnitudes. The angular size increases slightly from 16.2 to 17 arc seconds. It's lying in the constellation of Libra, the scales. Now, there's good and bad news. The good news is that the rings have now opened up to over 19 degrees to the line of sight. That's their best for about six years. So there's a chance of spotting Cassini's division, a gap in the rings, if the seeing's good. Now, the bad thing is that Saturn is now moving down to the most southerly part of the ecliptic, and so its elevation is really not that high. So we're seeing it through much more atmosphere than we were doing back in about 2003, when it was higher up. On the 30th, the very end of the month, in fact, it's at sort of right angles to the sun, so you can actually see the shadow of the planet on the ring system. It's always a wonderful planet to have a look at, and as we get towards the end of the month, it's becoming better and better to observe. Well, Mercury was essentially invisible to the unaided eye all month. On the very first of the month, you might just spot it well down to the left of Venus, just before dawn. At the very end of the month, you might spot it down to the lower left of Mars, just after sunset, but really it's not worth the effort. Mars. Mars has been around for a very long time. It's been moving eastwards, and that sort of meant it stayed roughly where it is in terms of the horizon just after sunset for a long time. It's on its way out now. At the beginning of the month, you can see it at about 10 degrees elevation in the southwest, about 45 minutes after sunset. But by the end of the month, that elevation is only 6 degrees. The angular size, just over 4 arc seconds, is so small, you're not really going to have a chance of seeing any markings on its salmon pink disk, unless you've got access, perhaps, to the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, finally, Venus. It's now getting closer to the Sun and nearing the end of its morning apparition. Its magnitude of minus 3.9 stays the same, basically, during the month, and the angular size drops slightly from 10.8 to 10.1 arc seconds. As it does so, though, the percentage illumination increases from 95 to 97%, and these two effects cancel out, and that's why the magnitude doesn't change. So it can be seen still before dawn, but as we gradually get to the end of the month, the elevation will be lower and lower, and finally it'll be lost in the sun's glare.
Well, what about some highlights? Well, as I've said, January is the third of three great months during which to view Jupiter. It's high in the ecliptic at a high elevation when due south. It's looking somewhat different than it was a few years ago. The North Equatorial Belt has become quite broad. The great red spot is currently a shade of pink, but can quite easily be seen as a large feature in the South Equatorial Belt. Jupiter was at opposition on the 3rd of December, so as I've said earlier, it's now crossing the meridian due south earlier in the evening. Ideal for observing. The features in the Jovian atmosphere have been changing quite significantly over the last few years. In fact, for a while, the South Equatorial Belt vanished completely, but it's now come back to its normal, fairly wide state. And in the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, I've made a little chart showing the main features of the surface, and that's based upon an image I took with a telescope just a few days before recording this program. I've also given on the night sky page a list of times in the evening when the great red spot is basically facing us. It's on the central meridian. So you can have a look, for example, on the 1st of January, if you're still around and awake, 2020, on the 30th at 1918. So the list of good times to see the red spot. On the 6th of January, about an hour before dawn, you can actually see Saturn and a nice waning crescent moon lying below the star Spica in Virgo. In January, Jupiter is lying between the Hyades and the Pleiades. But I notice when looking at the star charts, it's actually quite close to an asteroid called Vesta. That Vesta will only be two degrees away from Aldebaran, the bright star in the Hyades cluster that we see. And so you could see it with a pair of binoculars. Just put Aldebaran to the lower right, perhaps, of your field of view, and you should see Vesta higher up. Again, a little chart to show you exactly where it is during the month. Probably the best time to look for it are on the 10th and 11th of January, because it's then very close to a star having almost identical brightness. It will look like a nice double star, and that will make it be more easy to spot, I suspect. On Jan the 10th, just before dawn, you can see Venus and a thin, waning crescent moon. On the 13th, you could have a look, perhaps for the last time this month, for Mars, and that's along with a waxing, very, very thin crescent moon. At that time, there's a chance of seeing Earthshine. It's the dark side of the moon, illuminated by light, reflected off clouds on the Earth. Can look rather lovely. Well, that's it for the month. We've still got nice long nights. They have been pretty cold, actually, in the last few days as I record this. But let's hope we get some slightly warmer nights, but still ones that are clear, so you can go out and have a look. And by the way, if you haven't got a telescope to have a look at Jupiter, now is really the time to get one. They don't cost a vast amount of money, and there's some wonderful things you can see. And just seeing the bands and the red spot of Jupiter and perhaps four of its moons at one time, is a lovely sight. So all the best. Thanks for that, Ian. And now John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Sure and welcome to the January broadcast coming to you from Carter Observatory. January 2013 finds the Earth still here after another failed round of doomsday predictions. Our evening sky is dominated by the planet of Jupiter, along with the constellations of Orion, Canis Major and Taurus in our northern sky. Appearing as a bright white star, Jupiter continues to move in front of the distant stars that form the constellation of Taurus the Ball. 
Jupiter was at its best in early December and will slowly fade in brightness as it moves away from the Earth. Taurus is one of those zodiac constellations, the group of constellations that the ecliptic passes through. Over the year, the Sun appears to move in front of these constellations as the Earth completes its annual orbit around it. The bull's head appears as a V of stars with two horns tips stretching towards our northern horizon. The red star Aldebaran along with the compact V of stars called the Hyades mark his head. The Pleiades mark the bull's back and can be found to the west of his head. A cluster of at least seven stars visible to the eye and in the summer evening sky, they will twinkle markedly after sunset. By midnight the Earth's surface and atmosphere would have cooled and the twinkling will decrease and the view should become steadier. In Greek mythology, Taurus is the embodiment of the great god Zeus. Gemini and Cancer are two other zodiac constellations in our summer sky. The bright stars Castor and Pollux mark the heads of the twins and they can be found in the northeast after sunset. Gemini lies on the edge of the Milky Way and the regions around these stars contain a number of faint and distant stars. Within one degree of Castor there are five faint galaxies that will need a larger telescope to discover. The December radiant of the Gemini's meteor shower is also near to this star. Pollux, the bright of the two stars, is the 17th brightest star in our night sky. It is about 35 light years away from us. Nearby to Eta Geminorum is M35, an open cluster that under good conditions can be seen with the unaided eye. Catalogued in 1764 by Charles Messier, this cluster had been observed prior to this date. Binoculars and wide-field telescopes are the best way to view this lovely open cluster. Cancer the Crab is a fainter constellation of fine stars and at the centre a naked eye cluster of stars called the Praesepi or the Beehive. This large and bright cluster appears as a nebula to the unaided eye and binoculars will reveal individual stars in this cluster. Galileo viewed this cluster with his telescope in 1610 being the first human to see it as a cluster of stars. Orion the Hunter, our summer constellation, has a large number of bright stars and sights with binoculars and telescopes of any size. This bright grouping of stars dominates our summer evening sky and to us southern hemisphere observers hangs upside down. Orion's brightest stars, Rigel, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, along with three stars of his belt, form an easily seen pattern in the evening sky. Well placed for viewing is the Orion Nebula, which can be found in the middle of Orion's sword. To the unaided eye, this nebula appears as a fuzzy star. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, they will reveal a bat-shaped cloud. A 100mm or greater telescope will reveal a number of stars in and around the nebula, including a tight group of four stars called the trapezium. The ultraviolet radiation from the brightest star in the trapezium is illuminating the surrounding cloud for a region of about 20 light years. The nebula is estimated to be about 1,300 light years distant, and stars are still forming in the stellar nursery. Marking Orion's left foot is Rigel, the brightest star in Orion, although it is listed as Beta, the second brightest star in the constellation. It is the sixth brightest star in the night sky, shining at magnitude 0.18. To the east of Orion are its two hunting companions, Canis Major, the large dog, and Canis Minor, the small dog. The brightest star in our night sky, Sirius, marks the collar of Canis Major. For us, the dog is lying on his back with his feet up in the air. Sirius is about 8.7 light years away, and about 26 times brighter than the sun. Below Canis Major is Canis Minor, with Procyon marking his tail. But halfway along the line from Betelgeuse to Procyon, binoculars will reveal a rectangular cluster of stars embedded into a faint nebula called the Rosette. Almost overhead in the early evening sky is the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus. Measurements from the Hipparchus spacecraft put this star as being 310 light years away. This star has an estimated luminosity of 15,000 times that of our Sun. 
For early risers, you will see Saturn rise before the Sun. Through 2013, it will move through Libra, and we better place with June during our autumn and winter months. The planet's rings are slowly tilting towards us, and this will give us better views of the rings later this year. We hope you have clear skies during these summer nights and take the opportunity to view some of the delights of our southern skies. Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. Uh, So first of all, we have a post on the forum from Dave Nash, who says that he's glad that we received his Eclipse postcard from Cairns. And he just wanted to say that he is also from the UK, and so he did actually appreciate the November tropical weather, which I believe we were saying that we were quite jealous of. Yeah, I thought thought he lived there, but I guess he just went there, right place, right time. I need to time my holidays to coincide with astronomical events. It's definitely the way forward. I need to see an eclipse. I think it would be brilliant if I could. On Facebook, Chris Jordan says, Please don't tell people it's the last Jogcast. We know how rumours get started about the end of the world and other apocalypses. So it's definitely not the last Jogcast. In fact, it's not. it would be the end of the world if the Jogcast stopped. But that's it's okay. <laughs> Seven years are still going strong. And yeah, just thank you for the feedback and all the likes on Facebook as well. On Twitter, thank you for the Christmas wishes from Bill Keck 2. He said thank you to the Jogcast for another fine year. So uh, thank you for thanking us. And also Alchemy Laboratory, who said, have now listened to all the available back catalogue, presumably of the Jogcast, from the start up to the latest edition. Keep up the good work. That is an effort to listen to the whole back catalogue. That is quite impressive. I'm I'm always impressed when people say they've listened to them all or they've started listening from the beginning. It's There's a lot of episodes of the Jodcast on there. And thanks, of course, for all the retweets and the follow Fridays. And thank you for all the Ask an Astronomer questions that have been sent in by email. And don't forget, if you want to send in your own questions, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. And the address for that is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to Joanna Haig for the interview. The editors were Christina Smith, Claire Bretherton and Mark Perver. And the producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, Jod on! Jod on!